You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Estes is on top. The two-and-two pitch. Swung on, grounded down the third baseline. Miller dives and gets it. Up to his feet. The throw to first. In time! He got him yet again. A brilliant play by Bill Miller. And this one secures the shutout for Sean Estes. Sean Estes is a Giants fan favorite. His performances are an indicator of success. He won 19 games in 97. Giants won the division. Won 15 games in 2000. Giants won the division. But he's also a favorite because of his personality. He lets people in and shares his stories. Wait until you hear the one he shared with me about an accidental brush with the law early in his career. It's pretty funny. We go inside Sean Estes' Giant Moments. Now, now, now. This is Inside Giant Moments. Presented by T-Mobile. Our franchise has countless memorable, iconic moments. Join Mark Willard as he connects with our former players who lived these moments to relive the emotions, the stories, and the joy. All right, Sean Estes on the Inside Giant Moments podcast. Sean, a real pleasure to have you. This is going to be a great ride. How you doing, man? I'm doing great, man. Just looking forward to having a conversation with someone other than my family. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, this will this will definitely be that. We'll uh, we'll dive into every piece of your career, and you know it's interesting. I mean, because you debuted in the majors with the Giants, I think a, a lot of people think the Giants were the team that drafted you, but you were actually in the Mariners system, and they were really taking their time with you. A first rounder, you're in the system for almost four years. What were they doing with you? Well, they had no choice. I stunk. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I was terrible. I mean, they drafted me in the first round. They thought that I'd be on the on the fast path to the big leagues, and and that just wasn't the case. I, I wasn't I wasn't ready mentally, uh, physically. Um, I was in for a rude awakening when I got drafted, and and spent my first short season in Bellingham, Washington, and it was an uphill climb. Uh, to say the least, for the first three or four years of my minor league career with Seattle. And just when I started to figure it out, um, I, they traded me to the Giants. So the Giants were, were fortunately the team that got to reap the benefits of, of that. But, uh, yeah, it, the Mariners were the team that drafted me in 1991, and, and I think they expected bigger things out, out of Sean Estes. Uh, they, they were disappointed. Yeah. <laughs> well, what 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 was it that that clicked? Because as you said, it was right around the time that the Giants trade for you, and they fast track you. I mean, by September of that year, you're already called up. So, what what was going on at that time? Well, that time, well, the first few years, I was trying to just get my feet under me. I I, I just um, I grew up in a small town. I didn't have a lot of failure, um, and. You know, I felt that when I got to professional baseball that, that I would dominate like I did in high school. And and so when you go into it with that mentality and you fail for the first time, uh, you know, you either deal with it or you don't. And I, I wasn't able to deal with it all that well, the failure. So it took me a few years to kind of figure it out um, physically, you know, mechanically. 
uh, just really going out there and being able to throw a strike when I wanted to with a fastball, which should be something that you already know in high school, but it, unfortunately it's not the case with it wasn't the case with me or my curveball for that matter. So I had to figure out how to throw a fastball for a strike and a curveball for a strike consistently. I'm not even talking about hitting a corner. I'm talking about throwing the ball over the plate consistently. <laughs> and, it, and it took me it took me a few years to figure that out. And finally, in the off season in 1994, I had had a, a little shoulder injury in the spring of '94, and I had uh, I had surgery on it, and I missed a couple months of the season. So I went and I pitched in Appleton, Wisconsin, for the second year, the last couple months of that season. Then I went to instructional league, which they used to have right after the season finished, in se- the minor league season in September. And their objective with me in instructional league was to get my mechanics simplified enough where I could repeat my delivery and then also talk to the Mariners, uh, you know, team psychologist, whatever you want to call them, uh, a guy that could actually help me think the right way. Uh, because at that point in my career, uh, I, was, I had dealt with so much failure that I was starting to doubt myself. Uh, I was starting to question, like, if I was good enough to get to the big leagues. And I started focusing on things that were out of my control. I felt like every time I took the mound, I, I hoped that I did well rather than I knew that I was going to do well. And, I, and I, I really was more focused on things I couldn't control, believe it or not, than the things I can control. And so it's a simple thought process, but it took sitting down with Gary Mack um, with the Seattle Mariners two times a week during the offseason in 1994 and then working with some pitching coaches in the Mariner organization, Ron Romanic and Bobby Cuellar, two guys that really helped me out mechanically till I was able to finally see the light at the end of the tunnel. I mean, really, it, it was like a, it, it was the, the, the switch kind of just flipped. It went on in my head like, okay, this isn't as hard as I'm making it. And they came to, and that was the strike year between 94 and 95. The giant, the Mariners protected me on the 40 men roster that year. So I was, sitting out the the strike with the rest of the guys, the big leaguers, even though I hadn't pitched above low A ball. So when I got to spring training in 95, I, for the first time, had the confidence and the belief in my abilities that I could get to the big leagues. And now I knew that it wasn't – I was still on low A ball, so I knew it still could take me a couple years. But I at least was thinking the right way. I had the confidence in my physical abilities to, to get it done. It was a short spring training I made one appearance in spring training. They shipped me out. I went back to Appleton. I made two starts. I got traded to the Giants, and those ap- those two starts weren't really well. The Giants traded for me. I went to low A ball in the in the Giants organization, which was in Burlington, Iowa, the Midwest League. I pitched a month and a half there. Things went well there. They shot me up to San Jose. I pitched uh, almost a couple months in San Jose. Uh, had a lot of success there. They shipped me to they shipped me to Shreveport, the Double A, where Ron Ron Lotus was my manager. They had they were in first place at the time. They won the Texas League. I pitched the game one of the Texas League championship. We won it in two, at two out of three. I uh, went back to my house. I was staying in Shreveport, and I and I celebrated with friends and family and and teammates. And I was ready just to call it a year and and you know and and go home. And just say, you know, that was a heck of a ride that year. And now, you know, now next year I'll either go to double A or triple A and have a shot at the big leagues. 
I got a call from, from Bobby Evans, who ran the minor leagues at the time for the Giants, and they said they're going to call me up for the big leagues. I made three starts that year. So, yeah, talk about the fast track. Yeah, that, that was it, 1995. So, <laughs> and that's when I made my debut. Well, you know, you use the word mechanics, and you hear that, especially when pitchers are coming up all the time. But it, it, it sounds, based on your description, like what you were working on was was maybe more on the on the mental side of things than the physical absolutely i mean the physical part of it yes i had to really break down my mechanics and and simplify my mechanics because when you're out there on the mound as a pitcher and you're starting to think about separating your hands or getting your getting to a balance point uh or keeping the front side closed i mean when you have all these thoughts going through your mind your ability to execute a pitch diminishes. You don't have that. You don't have that. You're not focused on throwing a strike. Uh, you're focused more on your mechanics. So as soon as I was able to simplify my mechanics and just feel comfortable and confident that I didn't have to think about those, then the mental side of the game is what is, is really what came into play. Um, but I already had those tools and the foundation that was set off season '94 mentally that when '95 started. If I dealt with failure, or if I if an umpire missed a strike call, or if uh, a, a guy behind me booted a ball, or if the offense didn't score any runs, I understood that those are things that are completely out of my control. If I let those things affect me, it's going to affect my next pitch, my next game, and I could it could snowball like it had earlier on in my career. So I was able to think from pitch to pitch, um, and, and amazingly enough, that 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 worked. <laughs> you know, and it sounds pretty yeah. simple, but it really it's not because there's so many things happening in the game around you and the game starts to speed up and you start to think about things you're not supposed to think about on the mound. Uh, and, and ultimately, all you can think about as a pitcher is, is, is executing a quality pitch with conviction, meaning you have to believe in that pitch. Uh, and that's where a catcher can come into play. He puts a sign down. You know what you want to throw, but he puts a sign down. You're like, ah, maybe he wants, maybe that's a good pitch to throw. Maybe you're, then you start to second guess yourself. No, you have to be convicted in the pitch you're going to throw. So that takes some mental training, you know, and, and at a young age, I just didn't feel like I had the ability to be there yet. So it took me young, meaning at 18, 19, 20 years old. By the time I hit 21, 22, uh, I was willing, and I, I think I probably swallowed my pride enough to be able to talk to somebody about that. To where, um, to where I, because I knew that I was spinning my wheels. You know, I, I, I wanted my goal was to get the big leagues, and and I was just convinced that this was going to be the only way to do it. And fortunately for the for the Mariners, they pushed me along, and and I was willing to do it, and and it helped me along the way. And there was tools that I used for the rest of my career. So you get those three starts under your belt in '95. Start in '96, you're still down on the farm, but in July. You get the call, and you start a game at Dodger Stadium. Seven innings, 11 strikeouts. I think you got a hit at the plate, and, and that was your first big league win. Did, did it match the vision that, that you had for kind of your, your big league arrival? Without a doubt, to a T. And, and, and you're right, I, I did actually get my first hit in that game. It was a broken bat single off of Hideo Nomo. But still, it was it was a single nonetheless, and I still have the broken bat to this day. But yes, as far as like going out there and pitching, uh, I was in Dodger Stadium. Uh, obviously, at the time, 
kind of knew about the rivalry. Uh, I grew up in northern Nevada, so, you know, giant fan growing up, but didn't attend a bunch of games. Uh, didn't actually experience any of those games as a fan, but now I'm there, and I, I understood what it was all about. So the biggest the biggest thing for me, though, was to go out there and make an impression and, and to show them that, that I belong in the big league. So when I got called up in 1995, I had no business being there. You know, like we talked about, I was in low A ball, Appleton, and then I made that fast track. They just wanted to see what they had. They had traded for me that year. They saw that I had success in the minor leagues. They want to see, you know, that firsthand, you know, who they traded for. So that was more of a, here's what you have. Um, and then in 96, I, I wasn't going to make the club no matter what. So I went to AAA for three months that year. And I, my, in Senate, my goal in AAA was that, and I've been told this at a young age, but it finally made sense because I had that little cup of coffee in 95, that you prepare in the minor leagues to stay in the big leagues. You don't prepare to get there. So I, I prepared to get there in 95, but 96, the three months that I spent in AAA, um, that's what allowed me to stay in the big leagues. I worked on a couple things. I fine-tuned some things that I needed to. I gained a lot of confidence in facing the next best level of competition before to get to the big leagues. I had a lot of success doing that. I made the all-star team that year uh, in AAA. Didn't have a chance to go pitching it because they had called me up, and that's where I made my debut in L.A., and um, that was uh, – I couldn't have asked – for a better and I always consider that my debut even though I made those three starts in 95 because that's when I felt like I got to the big leagues to stay there and that outing gave me the confidence that I belonged and I knew that I was going to be there for a long time um and it was into this day one of my best games I've ever pitched um it just it, it just be to considering the circumstances and um you know, the team I was facing at in their ballpark, and I was able to pitch one of my better games. So, uh, you know, something I'll never forget. You know, especially since you're saying that the goal was to stay once you got there. Uh, you made 10 more starts the rest of that year. You come out of it with an ERA that's sitting right at about three and a half, pretty solid. And so uh, are you feeling at that point like, okay, I achieved my goal, I'm, I'm, I'm established, and, and are you having confidence at the end of the year that you're going to stay? I did. I did. I, I, honestly, that game against the, against the Dodgers, I, I'm here, I said I'm here to stay. Like there's, the only thing that's going to derail me is, is going to be me, and now I'm not going to let that happen um, and, and, or, or something physically happens. Uh, but then I still said, you know, I, I can work back from that. I can get back to that. I know what it takes to be successful at that level. Um, and it, it really is just a it's, a, it's almost like a fearlessness, you know, fearlessness that you have. It's, it's, uh, um, it borders, it bordered a little bit on cockiness. You know, I just, I, I feel like you got to have a little bit of that to know that you belong. Uh, you know, and there, you are going to fail a lot in your career. You know, it's just how you, it's how you deal with those failures. And I had had enough of them in the minor leagues to know that no matter what's thrown at me at this point, I can handle it. Um, but I knew at that point that I had the confidence that I could get big league hitters out and that I could even dominate big league hitters at times when I was at my best. So that was, uh, that was something that, yes, that after that game, I knew I belonged. And then I actually pull, I, I uh, strained an oblique muscle at the end of 98 or maybe August of 98 and then missing the rest of the year. 
But even going into that offseason, I felt that I was there to stay. Uh, hey, before we get to 1997, can we uh, can we – Go on a uh, on a quick aside here. Do you want to explain your little, uh, I should say, with air quotes, brush with the law in uh, in Los Gatos that off season? Well, I mean, it it did happen in the off season in '96. So, and then I turned around and had my best year as a professional in '97. So, yeah, right. I, don't, I don't mind really talking I... about it. Um, yeah, no, it was it was a, and I talked about you know mentally feeling like that I I had the tools in place to actually. Um, you know, have success every fifth day on the mound in the big leagues, right? Now, that didn't, I didn't say that those – and they should have probably held me off the field as well. But I was still a kid, and I was still having a good time. And it was the off season. I was living in San Francisco. I was having the time of my life. I had some friends down in Los Gatos. Um, and I would go down there from time to time to hang out with them. And, yeah, one night I had, a, had a, you know, a couple – beverages at a, at a local establishment down there uh came out of the place and and I, I i saw a bike sitting there and i can remember it like it clear as day it, it was there was a mountain bike sitting out in front and so not using the best judgment in the world at that time um i think we've all been there they i, I actually hopped on the bike and um i took it for a little spin I took a lot. I don't know how far I went. I don't even think I went out of sight of of the place I was at. I think I just went kind of across the street up the side. Of, the reason why I even did that is because there was a group of us, and we were waiting for like three or four guys to come out. And so and we were just standing there, so I figured, what the heck. Well, I came back, you know, there was a couple cops standing out in front. So I knew at that point what I had, what I had done was wrong. Um and it, it honestly didn't hit me until then. I, I, I didn't know. I, I, I honestly, it wasn't mar- It wasn't really a marked mountain bike. Um, it probably was if they would have, you know, but I didn't notice it. Um, and so I came back, got off the bike, and figured, oh, no big, no big deal. Uh, you know, I, I brought it back. Let's go. Everybody, let's go home for the night. Uh, but, no, they had, they had other ideas. So as I got off the bike, one of the cops, he um, – he came up to me and he said, hey, you know, you're going to jail. Put your hands, you know, behind your back or over your head or something like that. And I'm like, for what? And they're like, this is police property. And I said, well, officer, I, I did not know this was your bike. I'm sorry. I, I got on it. I took it across the street, down the side. I can either, like, we don't care. This is police property. This is like our, our car, our cop car. This is, you know, if there's anything that happens, we need this vehicle to take care of business. I'm thinking like, we're in Las Gatas, and the people know Las Gatas. I mean, it's a very white-collar town. There's not a lot happening in that town as far as crime goes. So I'm thinking, they're just going to let me go. But they didn't. They, they, they were going to arrest me. And, and I just had this moment of, moment of panic. Like, they're, they're serious right now. Because at first I thought it was a little bit of a joke. And um, the, the joke was actually on me, and I, I was going to go to jail. And so I had this, like, fight or flight, like, moment of like just a probably a lapse of reason or something and, and i took off i just started running i, I took <laughs> off down the streets and um i was pretty quick i mean i that was one thing i was blessed with i, I was blessed with some, some speed and uh destiny used to actually use me to pinch around quite a bit so yep. i knew that i could probably get away with it get, get 
away from them that night, unless I was, you know, unless it was like a, 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 one of the cops was like an Olympi- Olympian or something in the 100. But I felt like that I could get away, and uh, I was able to outrun them that night. But that night turned into just, I mean, it, it was a long night. I ended up up in a tree. They had the uh, the whole LGBT out looking for me. They had I could see spotlights going around and knocking on doors, but I'm sitting up at the top of this tree for like two hours. Just nowadays you couldn't get away with this, but back in 1996 you could. Um, and so finally I felt it was safe to come down. I came down. I went and got no cell phone, so I went to a I went to a payphone, called the cab, and got a cab to where my car was, which was at my buddy's house. And then I just I I drove all the way back to the city. That but it was probably like two three in the morning. Anyway, um, they ended up going back, positively identifying me. Uh, someone in, in the place knew who I was. And I, granted, I only had three months in the big league, so I must have been probably must have been talking about who I was at some point to somebody. But they went back and, and, and got positively identified me. Well, they didn't posit- They found out my name, and then the cop went to the store, baseball card store, and positively identified me for my baseball card. That's what he told me afterwards. So, oh, no way. Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> they just called the Giants. I'm working out. Like, this is a Friday night. Monday, I used to always go to Candlestick. William Van Landingham and I used to go work out there in off season. And Conti would, would, would put us through our workouts. And I remember getting a workout in on Monday, and George Costins had a security still over it. Over, um, over at Oracle, or at, uh, yeah, I think it's called Oracle now. But anyway. Oracle uh, Park, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Oracle Park. At that point, yes. it was good. But George is still there, and uh, he came up to me, and he said, I just got a call from the LGPD, and he's like, you want to tell me what happened? I'm like, oh, my gosh. I figured, you know, that they'd find out sooner or later. So I had to go down there with George and Jack Bear, the lead to the attorney for the Giants, and turn myself in, get mug shot, fingerprint, the whole nine yards. And at the end of the day, it, it just ended up being more of an embarrassment. But I got off of all charges, um, and but it got in the paper. So it got in the Chronicle, and that's how, you know, it became a, a story. Uh, because if it hadn't gotten in the Chronicle, nobody would have known this, except for people, you know, people behind the scenes. So it turned right, out to be a right. pretty embarrassing story. My mom had to find out by finding out through the Sacramento Bee. Like I said, I grew up in northern Nevada, so they would read the Sacramento Bee, the Reno Gazette Journal, uh, and she saw it, or somebody at her work came up to her and said, hey, did you see the article about your son and the Sacramento Bee? It was like on the front page of the sports section. And I couldn't get to her before she found out. So anyway, it, it just it was more embarrassing because my, that's how my mom found out. I wished I would have told her beforehand so she wasn't – she didn't have to deal with it, you know. Uh, but, yeah, I had heard about it a lot from my teammates the next year. As a matter of fact, in 1997, uh, we were in Shea Stadium, and, and a bunch of guys on the team set up like a fake arrest in, in the, in the, in the, in the um, clubhouse. They had a cop bike in there sitting in front of my locker, and then they had the, they had the, uh, the cops from Shea Stadium came in and, and, and arrested, you know, for stealing their bike. So guys had some fun with it. At my expense, I deserved every bit of it. But fortunately for me, I went out and had a good year in 97, or it could have been a lot worse. 
Yeah, that uh, yeah, nineteen and five will make some stuff go away. I understand that. How? But when you did get to talk to your mom, how did that conversation go? Well, the thing was is that so the attorney that handled this whole case, the Giants actually helped me out. They hired a guy, a high profile guy down in Santa Cruz, that he ended up having. He was, you know, he had he was well connected and knew the DA that was handling the case. Um. And so he called me one day. He said, you know what? He said, I, I got all charges dropped. Nothing, you, know, do not, you have to do nothing. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, that's amazing. He said, but somehow the story got leaked to, you know, the media. And I, the yeah. only way that happens is if the cop, you know, because the cop that I went and turned myself, talk about a story. You know who the cop was that night? Oh. Hunter Bishop's dad. The first round draft no. for the Giants last year. Yes, <laughs> this, I didn't know this, that part. Oh, <laughs> uh, this, this was I didn't I didn't realize that till this past June. A buddy of mine, the guy I was staying with down in Las Gatas, called me one day. He said, "You'll never believe Hunter Bishop, who Hunter Bishop's dad is." And I was just like, "The name Bishop," because I knew Randall Bishop was the guy that was the cop that night because he got his name in the paper oh my and everything. Gosh. And he said, I said, no way. The same bishop that that ran after me that night in Gaddis? And he's like, yes. He's like, I got confirmation that's Hunter Bishop's dad. I'm like, God, no way. So, anyway, so that's kind of a little twist to the story. But um, I still haven't met Hunter. But I, when I do, I, I we have mutual friends, and I have talked to him, and, they, and Hunter had heard the story. Now, Hunter was not even born yet. He wasn't born until right. the next year. So he was I think he was born in ninety seven or ninety eight. So he hadn't been born yet. Uh and so he he did he, he did hear the story obviously after the fact as he you know gotten older and um but anyway, so so that was that. I can't remember where, where we were going with that, but yeah, I asked how the conversation was with your mom when you finally got yeah. to her. Okay, okay, so the conversation with my mom, so this, the, the, the attorney that, that handled the case, he called me. He said, you know, there's going to be a little – so the, the cop, Randall Bishop, probably ended up leaking it to the media. And so I'm not sure about that, but I'm pretty sure because that, that's kind of the only way that the media gets it. But because he said he was going to walk it to the DA so it wouldn't get into the media, but it ended up getting in the media. So he said, there'll be a little blurb in the Chronicle tomorrow. Uh, don't know, probably back page sports section or something like that. So I'm like, if that's the case and it's just the Chronicle, I said, my mom's not going to hear about it. You know, being pretty naive. Uh, so I didn't even think about it. So the next day, I go on the way back from working out. I'm with Van Landingham. He runs into a store, grabs a Chronicle. We get back. He gets back in the car. We're looking for the article. I got to the sports section he's flipping through but can't find it anywhere i'm like well maybe it just didn't make it in that's great closes up the paper he's like oh wait a second here it is it's on the front page so that's when i realized okay this isn't going to be a secret uh, this is <laughs> this is going to be this is going to be out there uh so i got off, i got home i went straight to my phone called my mom at work and she had already heard the news because it was in the Sacramento Bee on the front page of the sporting section. So she already left me a message, a voicemail on my, on my home phone. So I had to call and, and do some explaining. 
<laughs> so, yeah, that's never a good feeling there. Because, you know, I mean, I, just, I had just moved out of the house. I, went, I lived at home for my first three off-seasons, so I hadn't been too far removed from living under my parents' roof. So I still felt that that was something I, I needed to do. And uh, to really, it was more embarrassing for, for her and, and my family than it probably was for me. Well, I, I can't wait for the podcast uh, with uh, with you and Hunter Bishop. That's that's the podcast that I'm I'm looking forward to. Or we, uh, or, get, yeah. or we could get his dad on. We could do a three way. Get yes. his dad on and let his dad have his dad's recap of the night. <laughs> yeah. That would be even no, better. I'd always I'd like to hear how he got my name first and foremost. Right. Because none right. of my friends um, said that none of my friends sold me out. They said that they came back and asked, right? We don't know. We don't know what his name is. So oh, someone man, inside. That's funny. Yeah. All right. Well, that's that's my next effort. It, uh, that's where we're, I'm going to see if we can get connect all those dots. But uh, <laughs> oh, that's uh, that's quite a story. Um, okay, back to baseball. Uh, 1997 arrives, and uh, the team's coming off a last place finish. Uh, but you guys come out really hot, and on a personal level, you go 4-0 in April, including a two-hit shutout against the Astros. So w- what's what's going on right then? Because it, it, it seems like, you know, you're, you're finding a new level. Yeah, well, that spring, I, I, I was pitching well in the spring, and then I shoulder flared up a little bit. So I actually didn't um, make my first start. I started out on the DL. Uh, retroactive to spring training so I missed my first start so I came in a little late that year my first outing didn't go great I mean I threw I think five plus against the Phillies and uh, came away with a W more of a five and dive kind of just a grinded out outing I got the W there but then things started to get interesting I started to feel like physically like I, I was over the injury and Confidence-wise, like I said, I went into the offseason in 96 feeling really good about myself and about my future. And the stuff was there. The confidence was there. The belief was there. Um, I, I had it. You know, I was. I just had I felt like I had a ton of courage. I guess that's the word I use. I mean, I just didn't have any fear. Um, and when I went out there and took the mound, I expected to do good things. That outing against Houston that you mentioned, I flirted with the no-hitter in that game and could have had a no-hitter, but I didn't. JT Snow, I didn't realize how good he was at first base. That was the first year I played with him in the first month of the season. He made a tremendous play on a Pat Listash ground ball to the right side that I thought was going to get through. Listash being a fast guy, I hesitated a second and was and he beat the he beat the throw at first base. That was how I gave up my first hit, and then I gave up a oh. uh, a base hit in the ninth inning, I think, uh, to make it a two hit shutout. But being able to go and go and, and beat a pretty good team. And, you know, face Baggio and B- Biggio and uh, Bagwell and Biggio and Bell, uh, some pretty good hitters. That's when I was like, all right, okay, this is going to be fun, you know. And, and that was it. That start really helped things out quite a bit. Obviously, getting the W's helped. W's meant, meant a lot more back in 1997 than they do now uh, because yeah. – you know, Dusty Baker was a guy, you know, he really trusted his starters. He believed his five guys were his best pitchers, and he was going to ride them. He was going to give you a long leash to go out there and, and and figure it out. If you had a little trouble early in the game or middle part of the game, he was going to let you pitch through it unless you felt like that physically you weren't able to do it or you were fatiguing. He felt like mentally that was going to make you stronger, and that was going to benefit the team in the long run. 
So he let us. He, he, I had a long leash with him. So that was just it was a, it was a start that I needed to have that start that year, just mainly because of the injury, uh, getting over that mental hurdle, and then obviously just the confidence to know that okay, this is a team that just got this came together. Most of these guys are new. Um, Brian Saban went out and traded for you know J.T. Snow and Jeff Kent and Daryl Hamilton and Jose Vizcaino and. Uh, Julian Tavares and, you know, some bullpen guys that we really needed. And, and, you know, so we had a team that, you know, wasn't on paper like no one gave us a chance. And we came off of a really terrible year in 96. So uh, I think the team needed that start. But I think at that point, Dusty realized that, you know, in my ability is that this is a guy that we can kind of ride this year. So and I and I love that feeling that he that he instilled in me and telling me that you're going to be our horse this year. You know, he told me that early in the year. So, you know, be able to go out and have a start like that really helped my my confidence um, and really helped you, you know our, I mean the ability to know that like okay this is my role and, and I'm going to relish it. What did it mean to be an all star that year? Well, it's, it's the greatest honor you're going to have as, as a big leaguer. Obviously, winning a championship is the greatest team honor that you can have, but an individual honor, it's, it's, it's winning an all-star game. Now, I mean, you could probably say the Cy Young would be a little bit better, but, you know, just being able to be an all-star in July um, and your manager, you know, calling you into his office and, and giving you the news, and Dusty was actually part of the coaching staff that year in 97 in Cleveland. Bobby Cox was the manager, and he invited Dusty to help him coach. And so I got to share the all-star game with, with Dusty and Rod Beck and Barry Bonds. Um, you know, four were the, the four that represented the Giants that year. So uh, it was a tremendous honor. Like, like I said, I, I, I had a lot of confidence that time. So when I got to that all-star game, I didn't think it would be my last one. <laughs> I was like, yeah. you know, this is my yeah. first full season in the big leagues. I'll get back here again. Um, and – you know, unfortunately, I didn't because it would have been nice to make up for what I did because I gave up the, the, the game-losing home run in that game, uh, which was left a kind of a bad taste in my mouth. But uh, without a doubt, uh, one of the top five highlights of my career, um, just being able to pitch in that game and represent the National League that year. So, yeah, true, true honor. I mean, I like I said, I, like I, I thought I would get back to the All-Star game, never did. So, now looking back on it, um, I appreciate it a lot more. Uh, 19 wins certainly helps the Giants along to win the division. You make the playoffs. You outduel the Dodgers. The playoffs obviously were quick. However, close games, and uh, you had game two in that series against the Marlins. What did you learn in that outing? That, uh, it's tough to keep the nerves in check. Uh, it's the, it's the <laughs> highest. I mean, I had a lot of adrenaline coming out of the bullpen in the all-star game, but that was individual. This was team. Man, this is when your team relies on you, and you've been the ace of your, of your staff the whole season. Um, Kirk Reeder went out and pitched a heck of a game in game one, and I think we lose 1-0 to Kevin Brown. So I knew the importance of this game, and that was the first year where they had the wild card, um, where the wild card had – they had their first two games in their home park, which was a serious disadvantage to us. You know, yep. usually you get to start at home when you have the better record. But the but the Marlins had game one and game two at their park. We lose game one, and now we're kind of in a hole. And I felt a lot of pressure in that game, 
to go out there and, and, and pitch well. So I had a lot of adrenaline going into it. Um, it almost felt like my debut where I just, I, I had a tough time controlling my heartbeat, uh, tough time breathing, tough time relaxing. And um didn't pitch great, but, you know, it was another great game. Uh, we got to lighter. They got to me. I think I might have gone four or five innings. I can't remember. Um, but it came down to the end in that game, and we ended up losing a, a tough one. And now we're down 0-2 coming home, um, which is a tough hill to climb <laughs> in, in, any, yeah. in any format. But, um, but yeah, it was, it was one of those experiences where um, – I said, next time I get back to the playoffs, it's one of those things too. I said, we have a really good team. This isn't the last time we're going to, we're going to see the postseason, and I'll get another opportunity to go out there and, and pitch better. Uh, but yeah, that, that was, that was a tough one. That was my first playoff game. That was one where it, it obviously, you know, if you have to do it all over again, you would approach it a little bit different, but, uh, and I probably would have pitched a little bit better, but it's a team game and, and we were in it, you know, till the end. I can't remember how we lose that game, but I think it was, it might've even been extra innings, uh, but it was a heartbreak. I remember. Okay. Quick pause to thank our sponsor T-Mobile. It's never been more important to stay connected and T-Mobile has taken steps to support customers along with frontline workers nationwide during these uncertain times. They've been amazing. T-Mobile responded to customer needs by increasing network capacity, lifting smartphone data caps and increasing data allowances for schools and students in the Empower Ed program. They've also committed to donate $2.5 million to over 100 local schools and Boys and Girls Club of America, which provides childcare for our nation's first responders and healthcare workers, meals for families in need, and more. T-Mobile is committed to supporting customers, communities, and thanking frontline workers across the nation. Visit T-Mobile.com for more information. And now back to Inside Giant Moments. Uh, you are correct that there were more playoff experiences coming for this team. The, the following year, you certainly flirted with it as you guys ended up in the one-game playoff in Chicago. And it, it was interesting. I looked at the starting rotation numbers for the entire group in 98, which is a little bit more of a wobbly year for everybody. I think you had some injuries at, at certain points. And, and so to look at those numbers, uh, it, it was like, wow, how, how did this team even come close to the playoffs? Um, were you guys surprised to be there, and what was that experience like, the one-game playoff? No, we weren't, we weren't surprised to be there because of what we had done in 97. We felt we had the same team, in essence. Um, like you mentioned, I dealt with my shoulder my whole career. I'd have flare-ups from time to time and have to get cortisone shots. That was the first year I really had to deal with it for a, a significant amount of time. I missed a couple months. I had a tear in my rotator cuff that I was able to rehab through, so I had to sit and watch that. I had to cheerlead for a couple of months, which was tough to do, but uh, I was able to make it back, and we ended up, you know, sliding into that wild card game, which we shouldn't have, to be honest with you. Um, Rod, Rob, Rob Nen didn't, didn't blow too many saves late. I mean, he was about as automatic as you get. Um, but in Colorado, things happen, and we were in Colorado, yep. and Nephi Perez, of all players, who doesn't hit home runs, hit a home run to tie the game. Where if we win that game, we're in the playoffs. We don't even have to do a wild card game. We uh, we, we, we we make the playoffs. Nephew Perez ties it up. We lose the game. We have to go to Chicago and face the the ghost of Harry Carey, who had passed away the year the pre off season before, looming over us. I mean, literally, they had a huge blown up balloon of Harry Carey out in right field. Um, 
And and we didn't have Ron Beck that year. He was actually closing games for the Cubs. Uh, yep. So which was an interesting twist. But we did have the right guy up with the tying run or the go-ahead. He might have been the tying or go-ahead run when Joe Carter, who had one of the biggest home runs in World Series history uh, for the Toronto Blue Jays, he came up to the plate, and we're all thinking, wow, can he repeat what he did back then? I mean, granted, it was a wild-card game, but it was a winner-go-home game. So Rod Beck ended up winning the battle. and uh, But what a tremendous experience that was to go to Wrigley Field. And those guys, obviously, at that point, hadn't won a World Series for in forever. And um, they, they had a chance to go to the postseason. So that place was absolutely rocking. Um, and I think it was Mark Gardner versus Steve Traxel. And I think Steve Traxel might have walked like seven guys, but never. I don't think he gave up a hit or two, but a hit or two. Um, and we ended up losing that game. But uh, great game, great atmosphere. Unfortunately, we were on the losing end. Uh, the following year, you guys lose Bonds for a little while. I think there's some parallels between that and what happened in 2011 with Buster Posey. And so that that year ends up uh, w- without the postseason. But I, I want to get to 2000, which was such a fascinating year. But before we get to the latter part uh, of that year, I want to start on uh, May 24th of 2000. Do you remember the significance of that day? Come on. <laughs> of course I do. I got it marked on my calendar still. Every year I put a mark on it so I can go celebrate by myself. Yeah, yeah so where I'll did that come that from? One. A grand slam and a shutout all on the same day. The stars were aligned, man. I don't know. I mean, it, that was a magical year in 2000 to open up that ballpark and uh, have the best – record home record in the in in the big leagues that year after starting off i think owen six or something like that at home but that was a home game in may obviously may 24th against the uh the juggernauts the expos at that time they weren't but um <laughs> they uh i ended up having a pretty good day at the plate as well i hit a i, I came up with the bases loaded early in the game and i remember going up to the plate thinking I'm just going to take, because I think we might have had a 4 or 5-0 late lead at the time. I was just going to take the first pitch. But for whatever reason, the ball came, the, I saw the pitch, and I swung. And it, and it was like just a reaction. Like, And I kind of looked up, because I thought I hit a pop-up. I knew I hit it off the barrel, but I didn't know where it went. And then I saw it, where, I saw it going toward the outfield, and that's when I decided to run. And then I saw it go out, and it was like just the best feeling ever. He swings. He clobbers one. High and deep to left. Going back his way to the wall. It's a grand slam for Sean Estes. Estes hits a fastball over the wall in left center. And it is 11 to nothing Giants. I mean, ever. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't really know how to explain it. You know, when you pitch a game and you pitch well and you finish up the game and you're shaking hands with your teammates, that's a pretty darn good feeling as well. But you know, you feel exhausted. This was just euphoric. Like, that shouldn't have just happened, and it did. And now I have to find my way back down to earth to go out there and pitch the next inning. That's really what – and then Bonds came out, and he was hailing me. So that was, like – that was a pretty cool moment. Um, you know, he was bowing to me in the dugout, and I did it. I got I got to you know, do a curtain call. All things that normally don't happen to a starting pitcher. So uh, I was going to enjoy it. Yeah, it went pretty well. You came within a few feet of hitting a second Grand Slam later in the game, didn't you? 
I came up later with the bases loaded, and again, I'm thinking in my head, I'm like, I'm going to try to hit one now. Like, there wasn't even a, uh, <laughs> I'm taking a pitch. Uh, we, were, we were already blowing them out, but I'm like, I don't think any pitcher's ever hit two grand slams in a game. I think there has been, but at that point, I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm going for it this time. So I'm swinging for the fences, and I end up hitting one foul pretty close to going out. Um, and then I ended up getting a single on, on it and getting a couple RBI, and, and I think I ended up with five RBI, and then I felt – I felt I mean JT I think ended up with five as well that game so I didn't I didn't have bragging rights for high for high ribby game but still it was still pretty cool. All right, and you you finished that year fifteen and six. When you compare that to ninety seven and the nineteen wins, how do you compare them? Or, or are they pretty similar? Pretty similar, um, although just different circumstances. I, I at, in two thousand, you know, team was a little bit different. But, you know, we had LeVon Hernandez at that point, um, you know, who was kind of established himself as the ace of the, of the staff. So I didn't, I didn't feel like that, you know, I was probably one of the top two or three guys on, in the rotation that year. But I felt, like, I felt like we had a better rotation, you know. I didn't feel like that, um, you know, I felt like we all complemented each other really well, Russ Ortiz, Levo, um, and, and Woody. But that, to me, was the best team I ever played on. Um, offensively rotation bullpen that was the one team we went into the postseason that year where we thought we, we had a chance to win it all 97 was just one of those magical years where everything kind of came together uh with a bunch of new faces and we started in a nice run of, of winning baseball for for you know for for san francisco giants but 2000 in that ballpark the magic that we created there just the, the packed houses every night um, and then getting to the playoffs with with that club, uh, that was the year we thought we were going to get it done. Um, so let's jump into that postseason. LeVon gets game one against the Mets. You guys get the victory. Then it's your turn. What's going through your mind and body that day before the game? Yeah, I felt a lot better than I did against the Marlins in 97. I did. I did. I, from that experience I drew on uh, from 97, just being able to control my adrenaline, my nerves, just – being able to kind of breathe through that first inning. Um, I felt like I was throwing the ball really well. Uh, it was coincidentally, I, I, I faced, I was um, dueling Al Leiter as well. And he was on the, he was on the Mets in 2000 on the Marlins in 97. So the guy I faced was different, which is interesting side note, because, because he's not in the game, because he is in the game and he's a lefty, JT Snow was not in the game. And I get to that later. But as far as how I felt going, I felt a lot of confidence. I felt great pitching in that ballpark. It was a great place to pitch. I'd had success there in that park. We had won game one, so there wasn't that pressure having to, having to win game two um, and added to it. Uh, I was throwing the ball well, and then a guy named Timo Perez, who nobody really had heard of at that point, a left-handed batter, and I had my way with lefties because I had the curveball all year long, and he was in the lineup, and so I'm thinking, I can just get a curveball, and, and I can keep throwing him curveballs. He won't hit it. Well, I ended up throwing him a curveball, and he got a base hit. I think it drove in a couple runs, which I think I, I don't know how many runs I ended up giving up that game, but I pitched him much better than I did in 97. The results may not have been the same, but um, – but that was another epic game, epic finish. JT Snow comes off the bench yeah. because he's not in the lineup and hits that just probably the be- the biggest home run that we never talk about in Giant history because we weren't able to really celebrate it all that for all that long. 
I want to know about your emotions as you're out on the base paths in the third inning. You're trailing two to one at that time. You get a walk. Uh, Bill Miller with an infield single, and the injury happens at second base. Walk us through what happened there. I didn't realize it was in the third inning, so that was early in the game. I thought it was a little later, but, um, yeah, I thought we weren't going to talk about that, but I can't. I guess we can't leave that one out. <laughs> that, that, that was probably, you know, you talked about you talk about the grand slam and how the, the, the best I've ever felt on a baseball field. That was by far the worst. Stop in the hole at short. Bordick goes to second, and Estes beats the throw. And Estes is hurt. And I think they called him out. He went too far beyond the bag when he planted rather than sliding into second base. Estes is out, and he's also hurt. Well, that is not like Sean Estes to go into a bag standing up even if there's a remote possibility to play. Nice job by Bordick to even get to that ball, makes the off-balance throw back to Alfonso. And right there, the left ankle of Sean Estes rolls over. The bigger concern is the welfare of Sean Estes after that play. I mentioned earlier that Dusty Baker has used him as a pinch runner on numerous occasions this season, but goes in standing up, turns over that ankle, and now Kirk Reeder beginning to throw down in the Giants' bullpen. Big play in this game, and they're taking a long look at Estes in that third base side Giants dugout. And now Estes being helped down the steps. And on his way, apparently, back into the Giants' clubhouse, so it appears as though Estes is finished for the night. Obviously, pain, in addition to um, uh, being called out. Like, so, you know, coming off the base and being called out, because it, I was running down to second base. Bill Miller was up. The ball was hit to the right of second base. If you're – or he was he hit to the second base side of the bag. So I was thinking as he hit it that it was going to get through. So my, my focus was getting to third base. Like I said, I could pinch. I was pinch running, so I was a base runner. When I got on base, even though I was a pitcher, I was a base runner. I was trying to get the extra base and use the wheels. So I'm, trying to, I'm kind of making that turn to, to, to get a better angle on second base. And then the, the second baseman makes a nice backhand, and I see that. But before I could – I didn't even really have time to slide. I just lunged into second base. Um, and as I lunge into second base, my front of my foot hits the bag. I roll over my ankle. I blow it out. Uh, instant, just I could tell I did something really bad to my ankle. And shock went through my body. I get up, and I had just assumed because it was a force out that I was going to be out at second base. But you don't really even think about that. So um, I hop off the bag. They tag me, and then they call me out, and then I realize that there's some insult to the injury, um, and then I get carried off the field. So I'm up. My, 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 my whole bottom half of my leg is in an ice bucket uh, from the training room when JT Snow hits the home run. So I had to watch it on TV, but I heard it happen before it even I saw it on TV because I the, the place erupted, and it was, like, vibrating in the training room. So I knew something good had happened before I actually saw it on TV because of the delay. So uh, that, was, that, was, that was a pretty awesome moment. Um, and then we obviously lose the game the next inning. We didn't lose the game because we were the home team, but we give up the game losing run that next inning. Right. No, that's amazing. So how long was the time between when you heard the roar and then you saw it on TV so that you knew what it was? It had to be three, four seconds, you know, 
it's still going on. I could still feel it in the in the training room. So the and then and then it comes on the TV, you know, with a delay. So I don't know, maybe three, four, five seconds. So I was just anticipating. It was kind of the same feeling I had uh, when Ishikawa hit his home run against the Cardinals. Um, we were doing we were doing pre and post on the plaza, so we'd already been out there because it was the bottom of the inning. So we had to go on right after the game. So we 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 have a we have a monitor out on the on the set or out on the plaza, but it's delay. So we heard the place erupt. We didn't know he hit a home run, but then obviously, you know, we find out a few seconds later that he went deep. Um, but that's a pretty fun feeling to have, you know, just hear the excitement, not knowing what happened, but knowing something happened, not something good did happen. Uh, that, that, and that, that, that kind of made the pain go away, at least in my ankle in 2000 for a minute or two. <laughs> yeah. I'm wondering what your emotions are in, in full at that time. You're sitting in the trainer's room. Um, you, you said your, your legs in a, in a bucket of ice, but, JT does something that also has to make you feel like, uh, you know, you're, you're off the hook and, and there's new life for the entire series. So how would you describe all of that going on at once? Yeah, it, there was a lot of emotions. Obviously, in that game, there was, there was excitement of being able to pitch in the game. There was the pain of going through the injury, the insult of being tagged out, to going upstairs to the training room, to not knowing how bad it was. Uh, to watching the game on TV, just hoping we came back, uh, to coming back, tying the game, feeling like if we can get up too low at home, there's no turning back. We're winning that series no matter what. Um, and then having the emotion of of JT's home run the next day and completely being the other split the other way of, of just just depression, but then still thinking that, um, we still have a chance in the bottom half to, to, to tie it up or, or win the game. Um, but then the, the emotions were for me, you know, selfishly is I wanted to, I didn't, I didn't think that I was done. You know, I felt like, okay, I, I, I know I hurt myself pretty bad, but if we can, if we can get through the first round, maybe the second round, maybe I'm ready for the world series. Like I said, going into that postseason, that was the team, man. That was Ellis Burks got up after the season going to the playoffs. He said, I've been on a lot of teams. This is one of the best I've been on. We got a chance to go deep in this in the playoffs. You don't get many opportunities for this. And I just remember that him, him getting up in front of the team saying that. And you really, as a player, wanted to do it for guys like him who were at the end of their careers. Um, and I really felt that I, I, you know, from a team standpoint, we we had the team to get it done. And then personally, you know, I, I just wanted another shot to get out there and pitch. Um, like I said, I didn't know the extent of the injury. I just wanted to get through the first round, and I felt like that we win game two, uh, we're, we're gonna we're gonna win we're gonna win that first series, um, and then who knows about the NLCS? But uh, we lose that big game at home, and then we lose a big game in New York um, on Agbayani's home run, and then uh, Bobby Jones almost no hits us in game four, and we and we go home. And I was in New York. I flew I flew out with. Team. I was getting treatment the whole time and just just cheerleading like a son of a gun uh, that we could get through that first round. Uh, come to find out, I was I wouldn't have been able to pitch. I wouldn't have been able to pitch. I barely was able. I barely was 100 percent by next spring training. But just being oh. there with the club, hoping that that was uh, that that was uh, something that we could do, and we did another disappointing postseason. Wow, so, th- so that took you months to get over that. 
Yeah, no, it was it was it was about as bad as you could do. It, I would have been better off breaking my ankle. Uh, they told me than 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 tearing it like I did. I never needed surgery, but it was just a, it was a long rehab. That thing just didn't heal, and I came to spring training the next year, and um, and then in 2001, I ended up developing a bone spur in my ankle from the injury that I had to get surgery on in the post in the off season, and it actually affected me later on in that year in 2001. I think the last couple months of the season I was dealing with it. They ended up putting spikes on the bottom of like of like uh, basketball shoes to try to help the injury. Um, just so I could just go out there and pitch, but that that was something I had to deal with in '01, um, and that was all because of that that, that no slide. So yeah, that that thing had some lingering effects to it. You had one more year in a Giants uniform, and I'm still trying to figure out how that 2001 team didn't make the playoffs. That rotation: you, Levon, Ortiz, Woody, you acquire Jason Schmidt. Bonds hits 73 home runs. Aurelia hits another 37. Kent drives in 100. How does that team not make the playoffs? That's a good question. I don't know. It was another great team. I mean, it was pretty much the same team, but we had the, we had Schmidt, who went, I think, 6-0 and or 8-0 when we traded for him. He was dominant that second half of the season. Um, you know, like you said, Barry chasing down the record. I don't know. I mean, I don't know if 9-11 had anything to do with our momentum. Um, I, I don't know because you can make that excuse for any club. But, uh, you know, we had a tough time with the Dodgers that year, me in particular. And uh, they ended up, you know, derailing us there that last series, of the, or that last weekend series. But, yeah, I don't know. I, I can't remember a whole lot that went on after 9-11 just because, you know, there was no baseball for a while. We came back. Everybody's kind of in a fog. So there was just – it was kind of a blur up until that last weekend against the Dodgers where I knew we got eliminated, but Barry ended up, um, you know, breaking the record with 73 on that Friday night against the Dodgers. But we get eliminated from the playoffs in that game, so it was a bittersweet game for us. But another club that we felt like that that could do it, um, and we fell a little bit short. How do you look at all of it in the rearview mirror? I know you put on a lot of other uniforms after that, but you, you're you're obviously synonymous with the Giants and now broadcasting with them. How, how do you put into words when you look back on all of it? How, how do you put it into words, and how does it make you feel? Well, Giants always make you feel like you're part of the family, even when you know, even when things may not end well. And I didn't feel like they ended ended real well, and, and I always had a bitter taste in my mouth when I left. Uh, when I got traded because I I wanted to be a giant my whole career I know that's tough to do but I, I felt like that I you know I, I just felt like that I it was home to me and, and nobody wants to move out of their home you know get kicked out of their home so um, it, it was tough I, and I felt like that the way that the season ended in 01 um, you know the way that Jason Schmidt pitched for the club I feel like they had to make that decision right there because I was about to get paid in arbitration um, and they made that decision, and Sabian told me at the time that, you know, the toughest, obviously Matt Williams was a tough trade he had to make, and then he really was a big fan of Bill Miller, and that was another tough one he had to make. But he said that was just, that was the hardest trade he had to make at that time. And, and um, you know, and he made it, and I became a Met. But uh, definitely, definitely, gosh, that, that one hurt. It hurt because I, I lived in the city my whole career as a giant one of the few guys that did when we, when we played in candlestick and 
you know, and I never left. And, and I, I ended up buying a home uh, in the city, and then, you know, I got traded. So I went home for a couple off seasons before I sold the place and moved to Arizona. But, you know, I still felt like that's where my roots were. Um, so it was an obvious – when I came back, I wanted to get into broadcasting. You know, the Giants were an obvious choice for me just because I felt like I was coming home. Now that I want to live, did I want to have a little longer career there? Absolutely. I would have loved to play 10 years with the Giants, um, much, much like Kirk Reader. I would have loved to have been a teammate with Woody and, and Barry for another another four or five years um, and make a run in 02 like they did. You know, that one I had to watch on the couch in San Francisco, you know, so coming home from that from that season and playing in New York. So that was tough to watch because uh, those were all my buddies, you know, that I'm rooting for. And it would have been loved to be a part of that get to a world series so um now i look back on it you know no regrets uh, i wished I, I would have pitched better against the dodgers in 2001 i think that may have made a big difference um but you know i enjoyed the run there fortunately for for me peter mcgowan you know he had the he he i, I was a fan of his he was a fan of mine um you know i spent time with him in the off season him and his family uh, being in the city and, you know, he was able to establish the criteria to get on the wall. And I fit into that one, being able to play for the giants five years in an all-star game. So um, I'll always be there, you know, so that's something that, that you can't, they can't take away from me. Right. So um, I'll always be cemented on that wall of fame. So that, that felt good to be able to come back and really felt a closure at that point. Cause you have to be retired. So, you know, leave many organizations where you really don't leave baseball a lot of guys don't don't have the ability to leave baseball and feel closure you kind of just don't get any more calls and you retire and you go spend the rest of your life with, with your family you know or in, in trying to figure out what you're going to do but fortunately for the Giants I was able to get on the wall of fame and I was able to go to the ceremony and and I felt like that that was closure in my career so and I owe, owe that all to the Giants so uh, they gave me my ability to pitch in the big leagues and um i had some really really fun years as a san francisco giant it's great to put that uniform on and i i I do i don't take it for granted at all no doubt about it man it was fun to watch also and it was uh was a whole lot of fun to have this conversation some great moments to uh to remember really good stories in there sean thank you so much for taking the time to do this my pleasure mark had fun Thanks so much for listening to Inside Giant Moments, presented by T-Mobile. Don't forget to give us a rating and a review and share the podcast with your friends and family. For more exclusive conversations, subscribe to the Inside Giant Moments podcast, presented by T-Mobile, now. It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro.